Hello and welcome to the Neighbor Food Podcast. Today's topic is very important if you are in business, keeping your business sustainable, matching environmental needs and staying in the game. Yeah, and this is a great one for anyone thinking about setting up a food business or, you know, to be honest, any business at all. But I have to say it was a great chat for anybody who's got a small or medium business. Yeah, we were talking with Una Monaghan. She's a small, medium food business consultant. She started her career working in much larger food companies and eventually carved a path as a food consultant and a mentor through her own agency called Alpha Omega. She has a huge passion for artisans in particular, and during the pandemic, Una decided to put her money where her mouth is, literally, and buy foods and drinks from a list that she started compiling of Irish artisan food producers. So we chatted to her about her motivations for this project, who and what she discovered, and the digital directory that she is still updating today. Now, you may have also come across her book, which is called Money for Jam. It's an essential guide to starting a food business. And this book contains everything that someone who is new to the food game will need to get started. But more importantly, to keep going. And this came about after her mentoring and helping hundreds of small businesses all over the course of 10 years to do the same. And of course, she also dispensed some golden nuggets of business advice for us too on the podcast. This brought us on to talking about a lot of other business supports that are available, such as the work of the local enterprise offices in Ireland and, and much more. We spoke about, you know, keeping businesses sustainable, profitable and successful, growing for growth. And is that such a good thing or is that maybe not the right way to go? So Una works from her base in Drumahair in North Leitrim. So we started by asking her about the food scene in the west of Ireland. Okay, well, it's funny, people, um, when they talk about the West of Ireland, talk about scenery and tourism and adventure and mm. the outdoors and that kind of mm. thing. But food would be certainly a very big part of it. And I don't know if it's just because it's on my radar, but certainly uh, the food scene in the, in the West is very strong everywhere. I mean, the quality mm. of the food, the variety, the number of producers, the types of places you can go to eat. They're really, mm. you know, it's really evolved really well over the last few years. Um I think, though, and I find this generally in the country uh, when people talk about the food scene, that the emphasis can be on the restaurants and the chefs mm. and not mm. enough on the producers. And I'm a bit of a bee in my bonnet about that, actually. Um, <laughs> I really do. Like food trails very often are to restaurants and not to producers. Uh. You know, so uh, but there are plenty here. I mean, there's no question about it. There's I'm sure those restaurants are highlighting the producers, though, right? Some of them are really good about it now. And the ones yeah. that have been involved in trails and that kind of stuff would be more inclined to, you know, that have it on the menu. Yeah. They wouldn't be listing, you know, total produce as their supplier that actually have the grower. Mm-hmm. Comes mm-hmm. across. Some, I do come across that sometimes. But um, like at the moment, as I said, I'm doing a lot of work in, in Mayo and we've got, I think we did a, a, a list of the producers in Mayo. And it was just before COVID, we had 120 producers. Wow, wow geez, in a, in a county. That's Whoa. massive. That's, yeah. And I know there are more. Like I know for a fact there are more. I yeah, was ten, ten more last week. You know, mm. they're just kind of flying below the radar. I do a little bit, um, you know, doing enough for themselves. Probably might be their full business. It's probably just an additional income, mm-hmm. but they're there, you know. So it's, it's fantastic to see. It. And it's the same everywhere. Just people getting on with kind of doing local job, local work and maybe do a lot of bakers, a lot of celebration cake makers out there. Um, yeah. There's obviously demand, you know, and uh, yeah, they're all, yeah. all doing well. 
And are you just kind of like hovering about trying to find these people? Like, are you wandering down laneways and going, oh, look, there's there's a farm gate <laughs> selling carrots and raw milk. Like, how, how are you coming across these people? I'm a bit like that, actually. I mean, I would just, I suppose, as I say, I'm always on the alert looking for new producers. And uh, I mean, I can't go anywhere without kind of picking up a packaging or looking at something or going to a market or, you know, my, my I have two teenager, teenagers, they're very used to it now. And they'll say, oh, God, are you working now? I said, yeah, yeah, this is work. You know, as I go in and buy some more food, <laughs> it's not really work at all. Um, but so I suppose I, I'm just really interested. I'm just really interested in it. Genuinely, it's not, it's not just a job for me. Like, I really do enjoy seeing who's out there. And, uh, you know, I suppose maybe it's because of, you know, social media algorithms or something. They're thrown up in front of you when you're looking at them online anyway. Yeah, um, yeah. And people get in touch and. Anywhere I go, like if we go anywhere for, if I go anywhere for work, not that I'm traveling that much anymore, or just for a weekend away or something like that, I'll always be on the lookout for, well, what's around here and where am I going to eat? You know, that's kind of number one. <laughs> where am I going to yeah, eat? Yeah, yeah, see where yeah. I might starve, you know, but uh, <laughs> also that just that it's summer decent, not just kind of supermarket or not just, um, you know, service station, hot counter kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. So, so you work, you work with food businesses. So mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit, Alpha Omega is your agency is agency the right word yeah consultancy agency yeah consultancy. i don't really have it i can never come up with a proper name i've never really decided what it is it does a lot a lot of different things yeah powerhouse tell us a little bit about the um the alpha omega the what, what the work you're doing there is okay well i suppose how i got into it was it you know like a lot of things that evolved it wasn't sort of a you know an invent this uh moment but it was more something that kind of emerged so my background just really quickly is I did, you know, a science degree and then I specialized in food science and technology after that. So went to um, what was Dublin Institute of Technology and then went on to UCD. So I kind of specialized in food science technology. And my first job in that was working for um, a company called Ranks, so it was McDougall in the UK. We were now mm -hmm. probably been sold several times. People will remember Ranks Flour and McDougall and all that kind of thing, Hovis Bread. Uh, but the division I worked for was called Manor Bakeries that made Mr. Kipling cakes. So I was the mm -hmm. food and technologist and quality manager, Mr. Kipling, for a couple of years, uh, which is really interesting, actually. You know, it's it's huge, obviously. It's massive bakeries. In fact, one of the bakeries I worked in, one of the production managers had a bike, a bicycle that he used to use to get around inside the bakery. It was so massive. Wow. <laughs> it laid out literally as a line. Like it was, it, you know, everything, the mixture was made at one end of the building. Uh, and then it was deposited into the tin, the cake tins and into okay. the oven and then the whole way down the production line and out the other end. So it was very mm. well, it's very uh, good system actually. Um, and then after that, I came back to Ireland and I worked for Kerry Foods and I worked in uh, Monaghan for three years. I was quality manager in the, play, the place they had there at the time called Grove Turkeys. So I went mm. from making mince pies to Christmas t to turkeys. You know, so it's <laughs> very strong. We're still in the food world though, so you haven't gone that far. <laughs> so that was very different. Now from a nice warm bakery to a pretty cold meat plant, I can tell yeah, you, it's a real baptism of fire, really was. Mm. But I really enjoyed both places, you know, always because it's the people, the people you work with mm. are all the make or break of a place. And we had great crack working in, in really both places. And I'm still in touch with my friends in England that I made all those years ago and still with some of the ones in Monaghan even though we've really all moved on actually. And that business has been told at least twice since I was there. Um, and then when I came to Sligo, um, I came, moved to Sligo actually for a job. I moved out of the food sector for a good long time, for about seven years. I worked in pharmaceuticals. Actually made, it wasn't even pharma, it was vaccines. We made veterinary vaccines. Oh, wow. mm -hmm. I was production manager making vaccines for eight years. So ask me anything about vaccines and know it all. They're sick, of it. <laughs> They're sick of it here at home because it all kicked off a couple of years ago about vaccine production. I was saying, ah, they'll never have a vaccine that length of time. That's ridiculous. And, 
um, and look what they yeah, did proven wrong which is great you know it was yeah. brilliant mm. then I got back in, but I missed the food sector so I got back into it and I was with um, there's a really great college here in Sligo called St Angela's College people will know it from kind of home economics if you want to do home economics that's where you go um, but they also have a, or they had at the time an on-site uh, food technology centre, which its primary focus was outreach to produ- to producers, to the industry, mm-hmm. and providing that link between academics and industry. So we did a huge amount of work, and I was general manager there for four years. Um, and we grew it from, I think it was me plus one part-timer up to seven staff at the time I left. Mm-hmm. And we were really busy. So there was a big demand, mm. especially from small producers. Small producers are very needy. Um, and uh, so we were able to provide them with a lot of assistance and help and access to supports and money and everything else. Mm. But then after that, I thought, you know, I'm working really hard here. Um, I could be doing this for myself. And it wasn't mm. really everything I wanted. There was things I would like to have done that um, kind of weren't within the remit of, of my role. So I thought, well, I'll give this a go. I'll take a year off. I'll ask for kind of a leave of absence for a year and um, see what happens. And I had two very small children at the time, one baby and one kind of toddler. I thought this would be a great way of having a better home life balance. <laughs> Nobody mm. told me when you're starting your business, you, know, you have no time at all. But um, but honestly, I've never looked back since. I really haven't. It's just amazing. kind of decided to take the leap. And it's funny when you make the leap. And because I had the comfort of knowing I could go back after a year, which is always mm. a great mm. question. But mm. really knowing in my heart and my soul that I probably wouldn't ever go back. But it just, it made it easier. It wasn't a com- complete break. And um, then I remember at the end of the first year, they were kind of saying to me, well, are you coming back? And I was like, oh, no, no, I'm not. I said, I forget to tell you, like I had never a notion of going back. Um, and that's it's definitely a bug, isn't it? Like once you well, start running your own business, like, yeah. It definitely is. I mean, the freedom is fantastic. It really mm. is. You do what you want. I, mean, I work really hard. There's no question. I work really hard. But I can do it whenever I feel like it, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I work yeah. about a four and a half day a week. I never work more than a four and a half day a week. Friday mm-hmm. mornings, I actually go out to Ross's point and I swim. There's a gang of us swimming every Friday morning. And we walk the beach and we have a coffee and we natter and then I come back and I work in the afternoon. And it's and I haven't, my income, my turnover has gone up since I started doing that. Yeah, I actually would agree with you on that because I, I did the same thing with Neighbor Food when it first started getting becoming a full-time job for me was was during the beginning of the pandemic and you know I was doing kind of like 12 to 14 hour days and I was doing it seven days a week and I my second daughter was born in the middle of that as well Uh, and we were all locked in a house together with us I had a six six six-year-old too you know and when everything kind of calmed down and I have so much that I need to do I wasn't able to say I'll do four and a half but I've changed it now where I kind of work eight or eight thirty until seven yeah um monday to thursday and i finish at lunchtime on friday to pick them up from school yeah that's great isn't it? um because i just don't get it properly during the week we go swimming or we do something like this and it's yeah my productivity has gone up massively it's amazing I, and you just you know the, the happiness factor of course is, is brilliant as well so i know people yeah. are always giving out about sea swimmers and saying oh, we're a bit smug and we probably are a little bit smug because it's so great you know no, it's, uh, i i'm a big fan of the sea yeah you're speaking well. to uh, an og like, sea swimmer own, like, here this is this is it like i mean There's just one. put me in the sea and i am definitely at my happiest on, on average, um, on average between, how many how many days in the week would you be would you be in usually um four or five days a week oh that's great yeah yeah i live only five minutes from the beach so i mean i've no excuse for it really but i remember julian when i first met you you were sea swimming which is like i don't know 10 years ago 
long time, long time ago. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's it's a joke, it's the best possible joke. No, totally. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that's why we're all smiling away. <laughs> um, you also wrote a book actually about um about entrepreneurism. I did, yeah. So like what happened was once I set up my own and I was working with a lot of different producers, I kind of sort of said, well, who's out there? Whatever you need, I'll, I'll see if I can do it sort of yeah. thing. Mm. And I'm, I've been doing a lot of mentoring always since day one. So through the local enterprise mm. offices or through Enterprise Ireland or different agencies. And I'd find that at the end of each session, well, excuse me, first of all, everybody has the same needs. doesn't matter who mm. they are, what part of the country. They're all at the same kind of questions, same concerns and worries and um, kind of lacking in confidence is a big thing, actually, mm. I find among startups and small producers. But um, so I would kind of put a pack of information together and send it off to email it all together and send it off to them. And then I thought mm. I probably should package this a bit better and have it all ready to go. But I would make it bespoke mm. for each of them. There was mm. a lot of work in it, actually. And I began to think, I wonder if there's some way I can do this a bit more efficiently. And I looked around to see, was there anything out there? And there wasn't. And was there a book out there? And there wasn't. It certainly wasn't anything in Ireland. There was a couple of startup books uh, for food producers in the in America, but very little actually. Okay. Um, now there is obviously the Food Safety Authority has their little startup pack, but it's mm. quite. Um, but I found certainly with the people I was working with, it was not that accessible in in as much as the language was very formal, very legalistic, mm. and a bit scary. Honestly, you know, yeah. kind of things like you know first register with your you know EHO, and even th- things like you know with your um what's the phrase the competent authority like what the hell is that mm. when you're starting mm. up cakes mm. you know. So kind of put together a package. And I thought, I wonder, should I make, turn this into a book? And I, when I self-published and it was all this kind of, went through all the whole thing, everybody, everyone mm. through. But I wasn't going to do that because I just thought, well, I haven't got time to be self-publishing. I haven't got time to be looking at, casting around, looking for, you know, a printer and a designer, all this kind of carry on. I'll see what mm. the story is with the publisher, especially when it comes to the distribution. So um, came across Oak Tree Press in Cork, of course. Mm-hmm. And really well known as uh, having the Starting a Business in Ireland book, which has been republished, must be on the 20th edition at least mm-hmm. now. And contacted them and had a meeting with them. And they said they would, they would thought it was really good. There was a gap in the market and they would publish. So that's how I ended up doing it and how I got the publisher. Mm-hmm. So the thing was always to look at, like any good market researcher will tell you, is, is there a gap in the market for this? And there mm-hmm. definitely was a gap. Mm-hmm. So I kind of went back then to what I would do with people when I mentor them and say well, what are the questions they ask me what's the information that they need and kind mm-hmm. of develop the chapters based on that mm-hmm. that's pretty can I ask you how and long how many years let's say were you into the mentoring at this stage when the book came together um well it was published first edition was published in 2013 and I set up in about I'd say it's probably three years into the mentoring maybe mm-hmm. okay something okay. like that and the book is called Money for Jam, an essential guide to starting a food business. Yeah. Can you can you buy it in your bookshop? Do you download it? How does one get a copy of this? You can. Um the second edition actually published in twenty seventeen because of course, but five minutes after I published the first one, then the EU came in and changed the legislation Typical. Well actually it'll give me another boost now, give me an excuse to, you know, relaunch. <laughs> and um, had to update it because I was putting in any copies I was selling online. I was putting a little, you know, note into it saying, by the way, when you come to this chapter, follow this link. Oh, I thought that's a bit okay. messy. So I'm yeah. back to the publisher. I said, what do you think? He says, yeah, no, we'll, re- we'll relaunch it. It's fine. Good. So yeah, you can. You can get it online. Um, you can buy it directly from my own website, but you can also get it from online publishers. That they, you can still get yeah. it through Amazon and the book depository if you want to go that route. Yeah. But actually, um, that bookshop in Limerick, whose name won't come to my head now, there's a really good bookshop in Limerick. They have it in stock and a few other places have it in stock. Yeah. Ballymaloo, um Bakery, uh, Farm Shop, they had it in stock yeah. when I was there last summer. 
Uh, but you'll find it if the shop doesn't have it, they can order it in because yeah. it's being um, Gill do the distribution, so it's mm. well known mm. as a distributor. Great. Okay, we're gonna gonna look out for that one. And you did, oh, did you Dan. just sing in the book? But did you enjoy the process of writing this particular book? Yeah, I really did actually. Um, it's kind of I love a bit of structure. I'm <laughs> mm. a bit of structure, and I like the idea of pulling it together. And I also worked really well with a publisher because I needed a deadline. Like nothing mm. motivates more than a deadline. And um, so just to have to do that and think, really think about what is going to be useful information, you know, so it was mm. quite, mm. quite factual. But the way I write it is more when I would hope it's more not casual, but certainly more conversational. Mm. You know, I'm not sort of saying, you know, you need to register with your competent authority. I'll say, look, if you're going to it's like playing a game, you have to follow the rules. So you play mm. sports, you follow the rules. If you're going to be in the food sector, you have to follow the rules. You mm. might like them, you might disagree with them, but this this is the deal. Mm. So yeah. This is how you go about it. Yeah. And um, so I really did enjoy that. I enjoyed, if you like, translating that into something that was more understandable and less, I suppose, more encouraging to producers to try and encourage people to mm. do the right thing and not find themselves caught out because they haven't registered or mm. worrying that they'll get caught doing something wrong when they haven't really, just to kind of give them a bit more assurance. Yeah. And is it specifically for Irish producers or is it for an international audience? Yeah, so the first edition was definitely specifically for Irish. And then the second one, I added in links for people in Scotland and Scotland, England and Wales. So mm. while my case studies are all Irish at the moment, certainly the links to things like um, where you register and where you get information about labeling and so on, that's all uh, for all those other countries as well, because it was very similar. Now, of course, mm. for Europe, it's the same legislation. So if somebody wants to buy it, exactly the same thing applies for anybody in Europe. Mm. Um, and I probably could go international. I should get back on to Brian O'Kane and Oak Tree and say, do you want to do an international edition? But no, um, You've heard it here first. I know, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I have to call it something else. Love no. money for jam, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I no, because I loved when I when I realized that you had this book and I looked into it and I haven't got my hands on a copy of it yet, but I'm looking forward to, oh, to, send to, to having send to having a read. Because so I started a food business when I was nineteen and uh I started it very loosely. It was very much like cash only and you know, and it was the only reason was just that I didn't really understand how anything worked. Mm. I was really, really lucky because my dad is an accountant. So oh, yeah. bookkeeping and and having the confidence to know that that side of it was legal, updated. And at least for four or five years, I, I kind of just didn't even go there in my mind. You know, I was just kind of like, you do my whatever and invoices come in and show me how to do this. And, that, you know, so th that side of it is so intimidating. And now we have so many technologies that make all of that so easy and yet we still have so many small businesses that work on pen and paper that panic at the thought of a VAT return that don't reclaim their VAT properly that don't register for VAT when it could be actually very mm. beneficial mm. yeah very beneficial for your business should I be a, a sole trader should I be um should I be a limited yeah, company me. um I come across so many people who who rush that ahead like you don't mm. need to be a sole trader. You can make up to 17. I, I don't, don't want to say a number because I don't want to confirm because these things change. But it's something like you can make up to a certain amount and just announce it in your personal. Yeah. So like all of that type of stuff, although there are Leos and although there are all the information out there, it's still so many mistakes that people make. And it's a real barrier to entry. Mm. And I've kind of watched a lot of people fail. Yeah. Because... Mm of the intimidation of all of that. And it's like, it just becomes like 
a second knowledge, kind of like a subconscious thing when you run a company for a number of years. And like, I'm, I think I'm in like 12 or 13 years now running um, one and now another one. But it's, um, you don't even have to think about it. Like all of these things are incredibly simple mm. when you learn them, but learning them is quite hard. Yeah. So I do think it's great that you made this book. And I think we, we'd love to... Um, We'll, we'll do some posts on our social media and stuff to, tr- oh, to try and encourage people to go there because it's not for someone starting a food business, in my opinion, just from reading the bits that I was able to find online. Mm. Like this is a tool for someone who's four or five years into running their business and is still intimidated by some of those elements. And actually just yeah. to, to finish up on that point, but a lot of the work that we're doing at the moment with neighbor food is on trying to look at those things and say, how do you, how do you take a small cottage industry or a small producer and say maybe the growth isn't isn't growth like maybe what you need is how do i make more profit without getting bigger and how can i so we're offering you know a free invoicing system which is coming through now so you can send out invoices to people through the inside so you don't have to worry about all that kind of stuff producing your vat returns for you integrating with your sage all of these types of things that can kind of take away that fear because it seems to be a huge hole in how a small business operates, mm. you know? Well, it totally is. And people, they just sort of say kind of, it's like, oh, it'll be grand. It's real head in the sand stuff, actually. And, yeah. you know, it's, as you say, it's not that complicated, but it's a fear. It's kind of a lack, mm. like, back to this lack of confidence again. It's, but if you don't address it sooner rather than later, then you're going to find this huge, big, you know, potential you know, mountain you feel you have to climb yeah. and it will become a mountain, you know, yeah. it will become a mountain. Mm. But the thing as well is that, um, you know, when it comes to people's costs, they don't do it. So they, I always say to people, you know, the food bit is the easy bit. The making the food bit is the reason you got into this. So that's the mm. easy bit. Forget about that. You know, that'll, you'll be able to find, do that. The two things people struggle with the most are the finances, managing the finance mm. costs, if you like the admin side of that kind of stuff mm. and distribution. They're the yeah, two yeah. biggest, yeah. single biggest mm. hurdles. Everything else is within your control. You know, design mm-hmm. your packaging. I think people struggle with marketing as well. Yeah, they are. Well, it, yeah, but I would say that it would come after those, honestly. But I really think that mm. the money side of things and the distribution are the, some of the biggest difficulties. Like, mm. I know people have been in business for 20 years. And I'll say, well, you know, which of your products are the most profitable? And they're kind of like, yeah, I don't know. You know, yeah. it's basically, you know, if A minus B is positive, that's great. And where A is everything coming in and B is everything going out. That's mm. kind of the way they're working on it. I said, well, that's not good enough. You need to know it a bit more tightly than that. You need to know where your costs, where, where your money's going. And as you say, how can I make myself more profitable? I mean, it kind of brings us on to that thing about sustainability for your business. Like it has to be commercially sustainable first. You, know, mm. you have to have a business mm. to sustain. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, you can start changing your packaging and it may add more cost, but you need to know what your margins are, what the fat is in your business, where you can afford to shave things off, where you can afford to, you know, add, you know, maybe fancy packaging that might add cost to your business can you increase the cost you're selling mm. price and really think about it rather than just actually give it a go and see what happens like it's mm. you know sticking your finger in the air isn't the way to run a business Hum- you know? i know it seems to be a human nature and we seem to do it with gdp as well on a global level of just like bigger not better you well, know well, it's just I, like just yeah. just bigger 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 yeah, chase revenue it's, i hate that i i mean i'm sitting here thinking you know growth is not always good growth is no. not you know why does it have to be bigger 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 and surely it could be better first better for it and then if you grow fine you might never want to grow you might no. not want to grow you no, might be happy grow. with your with your area working in the west of ireland or in munster or whatever it happens to be or you might want to say well i'm going to grow but maybe i can if i'm sitting in leitrim or sligo actually my growth could be in fermanagh or tyrone 
mm. not Cork. Mm. Actually, it's, it's only an yeah. hour up the road, not three and a half hours away. So yeah. think yeah. about the direction they want to move as well. Yeah, and grow, grow, grow your profit. Oh, totally grow your profit. With, I mean, with, without your sales or your ta- of your or your workforce you know oh, like you don't need to double your 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 workforce to try and be able to because it is a big problem for a lot of people is that they kind of get sustainable let's just use that word where they're kind of like there is a pretty consistent amount of money that comes out of this at the end of the month that goes to me and if I want to do more because maybe it's just about like I know that my business for a very very long time didn't give me what would be considered minimum wage. But when it was very busy and I had a lot of staff, I was on minimum wage. Yeah. Mm. And my answer to that in my juvenile mind was, okay, I've reached a point where I'm, you know, earning what would be deemed to be minimum wage. Um, Now I need to grow. Like Mm -hmm. I need to open another place or I need to do, and we Mm. did that. We, We opened a second place. We did more markets and everything. Looking forward rather than looking backwards was a huge mistake, really. So when I say, when somebody's starting up, I'll say to them, right, start off and think, how much money do I want to pay myself? If I was working mm. for somebody else, how, what would my income want to be? And maybe it's going to be, depends if it's an additional income or full income, but let's say mm. it's going to be 25,000 a year. I just pick a mm-hmm. number, right? So if you're going to pay yourself 25,000 a year, how many cups of coffee, how many jars of jam, how many buns do you need to sell mm. to make that, to give yourself the mm. turnover, to give yourself that income? And you don't know that until you work out the cost of the recipe. So in the mm, recipe yeah. packaging, so how much margin, how much basically salary comes out of your bun or your cake mm. or your mm. box of veg or whatever it happens to be. So I remember a friend of mine used to have a coffee shop years ago and I thought it was a great rule of thumb she had. If somebody ever asked her to sponsor something or to do anything, she'd say, well, if they want 200 euro. How many cups of coffee is that now? How many cups of coffee? And everything was measured in yeah, 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 coffee. Yeah. So I kind of use the same idea and say, well, if you're going to make 25,000 a year, I know you know that out of each unit or you, each product that you sell or each box or packet or bottle, whatever it is, mm. you can pay yourself 10 cents, which might be all it could be. How mm. many bottles are you going to have to sell to pay yourself 25,000 a year? Mm. And realistically, how many markets, how many shops, how many units do you need to shift per week? You know, and if there's not enough shops and markets around you, how much further afield are you going to have to go? Should you go online and work it that way? And then mm. sort of, and that's probably a better way to have some sort of plan for growth. And by growth, I mean paying yourself enough money, having that turnover to pay yourself mm. enough money. So you might say, yeah, well, are, are making more money to put back into your more. business as well? Like, you know, let's totally. be realistic here. Totally. You might measure your success in how many awards you win for your products or how well it's received by food writers or, or people that you respect. But like at the end of the day, if you make more money, maybe you don't care about it. But if you make more money, you can make more and better products in different ways. Well, you can. You can invest in equipment. I mean, I always say that people say, oh, the profit. Oh, I'm not in this for the profit. So I'm not talking about flipping profit and buying a second home. Like, we're, you know, get real. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about buying a bigger mixer. I'm talking about maybe yeah. buying a floor wrapper, maybe mm. getting a decent van. You know, yeah. the profit is for. It's not just mm. crack. You know, it's not just to count the cash. It's actually for, for investing in the business, making things maybe easier. Maybe you can reduce the amount of labor and mm. spend that time on marketing, for example, or on sales or whatever it happens to be to release time for yourself. So it's just about, and people are inclined to kind of go, especially small producers, kind of go um, piecemeal about it, I suppose. Or And I use the word organically by meaning unplanned, actually. It just okay. happens. Okay. Mm. So, which isn't the way to approach it. And again, you know, at the end of the year, if you're working that hard, if you're working all those hours and you're never off the road, and at the end of the year, you think, feck, I can't afford to go on a holiday. There's something wrong, you know? Mm. 
And a holiday mm. might be a weekend in Ackle, you know, <laughs> I'm not talking mm. anything big here, but really there's something wrong. And to, to really look at it and say, well, what am I in this for? I remember, actually, I always think about uh, when I did mentoring initially with uh, one of the sea salt companies. And I was, we were talking about it in the very early stages. It was Ackle Sea Salt, actually. They won't let me mention them at all. And they were drying the salt in large pans in a room at the back of the house. And it was, you know, it was very challenging in the beginning. And I remember saying to Marjorie O'Malley, so why are you doing this? And she goes, oh, she said, it's just such great crack. This is just so incredible, <laughs> you know. And, I, and we were laughing. And I said, this is the thing. Like, if you're not getting the crack out of it, if, if you're not enjoying it, then what are you doing it for? Go yeah. to the job. <laughs> Work in IT. Something's gonna, really going to make you money, you know. Yeah, I don't know yeah. her, but I definitely like to meet someone who describes boiling water as having massive crack. <laughs> I think it's more about being outside. <laughs> yeah, I gathered. <laughs> I gathered. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so, you know, this is true. And you know, this word you hear all the time about passion, which is definitely overused. It's really diluted the meaning of the word. But food mm. producers, God, if they don't love what they're doing, they won't be doing it for very long. Mm. You know, you know that yourselves. It's just because it's hard work, their money's not, you're not going to make massive profits. Your numbers are not going to be in double digits anytime soon when it comes to mm. your profits, but you have to enjoy it. And that's, that does pay, which is great. This is great. But you still have the money in the bank. Mm-hmm. You know, petrol in the car. You still have to, you know, God help us, the price has gone very, it's gone crazy at the minute. But, you know, so there are those costs that are going to have, keep coming at you every day, whether you sell mm. anything at all or not, you know, mm. so it's just yeah. a matter of trying to keep on top of it. Yeah. Why do you think people yeah. bother to do it, Una? setting up um, food I think it starts from usually just they've started something small and they do it for for love I mean the artisan side of things and you have people who buy out businesses because they want to you know they're in it for the business Mm. side of things and they enjoy Mm. the food sector but it's more commercially driven Mm. Um, so that's I'm not talking about that that type of person which I think is Mm. you know there's definitely a place for that too but for the artisan producers it's usually because they you know some of them let's say I mean I say this in my book actually like if you're the person people always go to for you know, making cakes or things for events or family events or christenings or whatever it happens mm. to be, or you've got a garden full of vegetables and you're starting to sell them and you want to start maybe making a bit more money or, or maybe in a lot of cases I've come across people who maybe been maybe redundant from a job and now they yeah. have a chance. It's not yeah. a risk. If you like they have mm. to have to make that decision, that leap. Yeah. So they've been, you know, they've lost their job or whatever. They have, you know, space now to think about it because it's been forced on them and they have an excuse, if you like, mm. to give that time to it. But, but it's because they enjoy it. It's because mm. they like making whatever it is that they make and they want to do something in food. Like yeah. it could be anything from whether it's cheese or, and I don't remember I've worked with cheesemakers that don't even have a farm. You know, if mm-hmm. they didn't even have cat, they didn't even have cows, they had to buy in their milk. But they yeah. really wanted to make cheese. They really, cheese. Mm. Yeah. They really yeah. wanted to do it. I want to ask so you a question that's very, that's very difficult to answer. Sorry, you, you might not be able to, but it's something I always wonder. The LEO system. Yeah. That's in Ireland, okay which is European funded? Uh, yeah, it's through Enterprise Ireland now, actually. I'm not sure. Okay, where it's through Enterprise Ireland, Ireland, right. But it's the local enterprise office, okay, if anyone yeah. wasn't, wouldn't know about this, but every food business and every small business in Ireland would know about it. It is a granting and funding body that you can go to and they create different types of modes of training, modes of mentoring. You know, you can be given a mentor, you can take part in group training sessions and then ultimately if it's uh, suitable for your project, you can receive some funding for it. Um, I kind of thought the world did that. I kind of thought that's what the, that's what the world does. It's not true. It oh, is, really? No. What? It is massive in Ireland. <laughs> There's a huge, they advertise trying to encourage people to set up businesses, set up small enterprises, get yeah. it going. Why do they do that? 
I don't know why it's come from because I know friends of mine in England who work in the food sector said they can't get over the amount of support there is in Ireland for Phenom- small business businesses. Like, it's just phenomenal. Yeah. And I think it has its pros and cons. In a way, the obviously the advantages are that there's a lot, you know, you can ask questions. And it's for anybody starting mm. up. I mean, you could be a small business for 20 years and still mm. use the Leo uh, mm. supports. You apply for funding or take part in the programs mm. and things. It's not just for startups. Um. It may have emerged out of the recession in the 80s. It kind of, there was the county enterprise boards first, CEBs, and they were kind of done by committee through the councils. And then they kind of evolved, then became the local enterprise offices. It must be about 10 years ago now, kind of under the auspices of Enterprise Ireland. And the idea is to kind of foster nascent businesses and grow them and then ideally grow them onto Enterprise Ireland level and then onto exporting. That was mm. That's kind of the thinking behind it. Yeah, and then there's a huge employment angle in it. So most of the yeah. of the applications would be based on how, how many will you will you employ, and if you hit those employment targets, then you move up through the funding scheme. Well, you do totally. I mean, and I have worked on not Leo applications, but I did for 15 years worked on cross border applications for funding, and I mm-hmm. still do some European applications, a kind of review applications, or and assess them for whether we grant it or not. So when I'm on the other end and I'm helping people put an application in, I would say now put your application together. And then do a Google search and see how many times you said jobs and how many times you said Brexit. Okay, so mm-hmm. this was about three years ago. And I said, if you haven't said it more than three times, then we need to put it in there somewhere. So we need to sprinkle it. <laughs> lots of things, right? And they'll laugh. And I said, well, you know what? Clever. This is what you need to do here. But you need to make sure. So they said, well, it's obvious that it's going to be, you know, about mitigating about Brexit. I said, well, it's not obvious if you don't, if you don't say it. So, mm. but I mean, jobs are fine, but surely one job is good too. You know, so it, as mm. a thing about forcing growth and maybe mm. on the one hand, or you could say fostering ambition on the other hand. So it's kind of depends on how you view it. I think mm. there's room for both. You do want to encourage people to start up. Some of the other negative or like one negative thing I think about it is that it makes people a little dependent on supports. So people, mm. I mean, I had somebody during the week say to me, you know, I can't get any money anywhere for anybody from anybody to help me start my business up. And I said, well, what are you looking for the money for? And they said, well, you know, I want to um, rent a premises and I can't get any, any grants for rent. And I said, and you won't. You know, I said, why would mm. anybody give you money for rent when you won't put your hand in your own pocket? You know, mm. why should you go with your hand out for every little thing? Mm. You have mm. to show that there's some, you know, ability to pay your rent is pretty basic when it comes to setting up the business. Mm. Absolutely. Somebody didn't seem to see it this way. And it can, I think there's a danger that it can foster. Now, most people aren't like this, but I have come across it enough what I would call a grant harvester, that they're out mm. there sucking up grants all over the place. Mm. And then at the end of the three years, when the grants run out, their business is back to this word again, it's not sustainable because they haven't mm. got enough of an income on its own merit. They're not generating enough income to mm. cover their costs and to, to run the business. Mm. So I think it's good for startup and I think it has a place and it needs to, the money needs to stop after about a year and a half, you know, in terms mm. of the support. And it should never be 100%. Never should be 100%. Yeah, it really is. In fairness to anything I've ever seen, it's always kind of 50, 50 and maybe, 50, maybe 75. It depends. I was just going to say 75 in, in capital, I think, isn't it? Yeah. And then the leader a, companies as well. People will know, have heard of leader through the rural yeah, enterprise. The rural, yeah, rural, rural version, basically. Yeah. They, have, they have a bigger one. And they have different programs as well. They're kind of, they're good that they're not doubling up. They're not duplicating. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're one or the other. Yeah. For sure. Or, or you could I, be, you could be both, but you're not. You're getting a different grant from them for different. So you might get money from, say, the Leo for one thing, and you might get money for capital from from Leader. So this okay. is the thing about duplicate fund, duplication of funding is you can get money from everybody if you want, as long as it's not for any of this. None of them are the same thing. 
Oh, okay. Mm. Why I always say to people, and- the project is this big. Maybe you're getting 10% from leader. Maybe you're getting 10% from somebody else. You'll be getting a bit from some cross-border thing, you know, so yeah. you can kind of add it all together. Yeah. So basically, the reason I asked you, <laughs> the reason I asked you that question was because um, I think it proves the fact that smaller businesses make sense in the economy as well as big ones. Well, do. you're talking to the converted here totally. So like 95% of all businesses in the country are SMEs, right? So an SME, yeah. small, medium business, less than 249 employees. But yeah. 90% of them are micro, which is less than 10 employees, nine or less. Yeah. Okay, mm. so... When it comes to government, um, you know, talking about the economy and talking about foreign direct investment, it makes my blood boil. It really does because the domestic economy, the domestic producer, no matter what sector you're in, if you're making, you know, chairs or banging things together with a nail or whatever it happens to be, micro businesses and domestic businesses are way, way more important to kind of, it's the solid, it's the foundation of any country. I really believe this strongly. FDIs are brilliant because they obviously have fantastic employment and they'll also encourage things like infrastructural development and all the kind of carry-ons. They have a big Mm. hit in terms of their impact. But Mm. then if they go, the impact's also massive, you know. Mm. The thing is that uh, on a a good side with the big, big companies, you take somewhere like Galway, like there was a huge company in Galway for years and years and years called Digital, right? So Digital were there for like 40 years or something. And then somewhere in the 90s, I think Digital left and People thought Galway was going to shut down. You know, it was just yeah. everybody yeah. you had worked in is a digital. But what it did was, and the same thing has happened actually with Dan and Limerick, is that people were so skilled, they were able to set up their own businesses and go and set up their, you know, do their own thing. And Invested their redundancy them. package into oh, totally. small, yeah. yeah. It's, it's yeah. a bit like, you know, the same way I see it around somewhere like Mayo, actually, you've got a big, big farm machinery company there called McHale Machinery. And there are so many little farm machinery companies that have sprung up around in the centre of Mayo for people who used to work at McHale who wanted to do their own thing, you know. Uh. So, which is great. So the same thing happens in the food sector. So a bit like me, I worked for big multinationals. I worked for, you know, Mr. Kipling. I worked for Kerry. What I've learned there, I can apply now to my own business. Yeah. You know, people who sort of set up on their own. And one thing I did notice actually when I worked in Monaghan, people in Monaghan are very industrious, unbelievably entrepreneurial. Unbelievably, mm. actually. People I knew worked in the factory during the week. They also would have had a couple of chicken houses or fact or turkey houses and possibly a mushroom house as well, you know. So they just yeah. had it all going on. And I don't know why, maybe it was, it was a big border county thing, but also the level of, it, there was two interesting things about that. The level of unemployment in Monaghan was very low. This is the 90s. I don't know what the level is now. But also the level of third level education was low as well. Yeah. You know. So people didn't have an expectation or there wasn't a tradition or whatever it was of going on to university. People my age hadn't gone to university, which really surprised me. Mm-hmm. I know sometimes their children were the first in their families to go, but by God, were they brilliant workers. You know, you look at the house, mm-hmm. and I can see it. So there's yeah. something about, you know, it's just, it's a mindset, I guess. I'm just kind of getting back to your question, Jack, about the Leos. Like, I think it's a great, it's a great way to support businesses. And there is a really, you know, successive governments here being good about that, no matter what party you're from, no matter what your feelings in it. They do support entrepreneurs, no question. Yeah, and it's a diver- yeah. It's it, 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 this is a kind of what we're what we're touching on here, but the diversifying your business. Yeah, D- diversifying your own small. You are a, an SME or a micro SME. It's important to diversify in a way and have different. You're talking about the mushroom shed and the the, the different types of things. Um, it might not be the 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 recommended. You know, perfect hone in and have one thing and and focus on that, which is 
kind of some advice that you're given sometimes, which is definitely wrong. You need mm-hmm. to split it out and you need to have a little bit more safety. That's, but that's that's mm-hmm. also an, a national approach that the LEO would have as well, which is that like all of these smaller little companies with everybody split out and, and employed in all these tinier little enterprises, there isn't that risk of a digital yeah. leaving. And there isn't mm. that same risk of a of a, a certain change that is outside of the control of of the people and and even the the country itself that kind of threatens uh, large scale unemployment. I was invited uh, years and years and years ago to um, a group like an action group of business people in Cork City who were who were brought mm. together to try and make strategies on behalf of the council to give some advice and lean in on like what could we do to to make this city better and there was incredible people there and and there was one woman in particular um who was a, a solicitor and and she 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 kind of chaired it she really really wonderful but the, the general idea and she agreed with it was that we need to get starbucks in for employment and like i was really like young at that stage and definitely very silly and stupid but even i could see i was like that's so not true that like, Starbucks employs way less baristas because they can do 250, 300 coffees each every day, mm. while a small little independent coffee van will do 100 and he's wrecked at the end of the day, <laughs> mm. you know, because he's doing everything manually. There's way more jobs created by micro businesses than there are by by larger ones. Anyway, oh let's God. not hone in too much on 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 that. But it's something that like our neighbor food philosophy and the whole effort and the work that we're kind of doing is this idea that a huge amount of smaller things is incredibly more robust incredibly more employment focused and the quality of everything is so much higher yeah and the other thing is i mean what you can do is you can um kind of use the same analogy to look at somebody's say their the range of products that they make so one of the Mm. things i'd always be trying to encourage producers to do no matter what stage they're at is you know looking at constantly looking at product development whether it's you know developing you know improving existing products for example or changing packaging or coming mm. up with new recipes new products like an innovation of course but i mean mm. i'm talking about the products themselves if you're reliant on too few products and then you've got a somebody comes in uh, as a competitor and they're very strong with the competition and they're mm. strong in the marketing that could be you gone so mm. you really do need to you know it's the if you use a food analogy you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket right so you yeah, do yeah. definitely want to hedge your bets with the number, number of products and that is that is business 101 really you know, you mm. always have to be developing new products and thinking about how can I improve? How can I get better? Apart from anything else, it just attracts more business. It's like having seasonal something for Easter, Paddy's Day, the summer, you know, just mm-hmm. kind of trying mm. to grab people's attention again. Otherwise, it just gets a bit jaded, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. People stop yeah. seeing you. you yeah, know, for your own shiny, personal. You something shiny, attract people's attention every so often. Like even Coca-Cola do it, you know. But the chat to, chat it. go and speak face to face with a vegetable farmer. Like th- their job is not easy. But why do they look so good? Mm. You know, they look so good because the lifestyle is very, very good. Working with the seasons is amazing because they have downtime, they have uptime. They, you know, it has that natural flow of div- diversifying your day and diversifying your year mm. in a really gorgeous way. Instead of going into your office and performing your a similar, same or similar duty in one particular place five days a week. Yeah. It's you need to do a huge amount of things like sea swimming or other types of activities to be able to stimulate yourself. But those mm. goddamn farmers just look like they're doing yoga three hours every day, you know, and they've got a great tan and <laughs> farmer's tan. <though. laughs> uh, farmer's tan. 
Anyway, I, I wanted to ask you something. We, we, we'll keep pressing on here because there's something else in particular that you are known for. What I discovered first, actually, was the Food and Drink Producers Online Directory. Can oh, you yeah. tell us a little bit about that and how that came together? So um, like one of the things I suppose I've done over the years is I keep a list of all my uh, all my clients, anybody I've ever done work with. I just kind of keep, keep them on a list. And um, of course, I'd be very GDPR compliant and all that, blah, blah, blah. But <laughs> the, um, it drive you mad. But uh the when the, when COVID hit last year or two years ago now, God, I keep thinking it's last year. Um, you know, nobody, you know, nobody thought it was going to be around this long. But at the same time, even for the six weeks or so, we kind of thought. I remember actually, it was it must have been last week. We were saying it's two years now since my daughter came home from school. So they're right, they're letting us go early for Paddy's weekend, okay. and then they were going to be off for a week, and it's going to be one week back in school, and then Easter. I said I'll probably keep you off altogether till after Easter. Then it'd be all grand, you know. Little did we know, but. Mm. Uh, at the time, straight away, when the restaurants closed and the hospitality closed, so many producers lost business because a lot of them are very reliant mm. on food service as well as retail. A lot, an awful lot. In fact, quite a large proportion. It was, it was a bit of a surprise to me actually how much, like maybe something up to 60, 70% of the smaller mm. producers were relying on food mm. service. And that was gone overnight. I thought, mm-hmm. what are they going to do? And I saw that uh, actually, I have to say, the Leo, back to the local enterprise office, they responded very quickly and they kind of ran a series mm. of uh, talks uh, about what you might be able to do and how to cope. I thought, well, what can they do now? How can they get product to consumers directly? Because people aren't going to shops, even though the shops are open. Mm. You weren't going unless you absolutely had to. And you certainly weren't going down for a moot to see what was new on the shelves this week, which is kind of mm. what you normally do. You go down with your list, you're in and out. It was never more efficient mm. actually, in terms of shopping. But I thought, well, what can you do? And there was, I said, well, I wonder, can they sell directly to online? I said, kind of, again, this kind of thought evolved one, one morning. I thought, I need to do something. And sat down, it was Saturday morning, I remember, and I looked at the laptop and took my list out and just went through my list of clients and thought, well, who has got an online shop and mm. who's delivering? So delivering was the key thing. It has to be delivering. Mm-hmm. There's no, click and collect was no good. And first of all, very few of them were doing anything online at all, not even just collecting, offering collection service. And the second thing was that very few of them were delivering. And and again, only some like I think I ended up with maybe 40 people that I could find around the country had, a, had an e-commerce site. So I wanted to look at proper e-commerce to try and push people on. So I said, well, I'll set up this directory. And, you know, if you're looking to buy something in your county and you want to, um, you know, buy, support local producers and this is the situation, you know, here's a list. Mm-hmm. I started to just to attract people. So it's grown now. I think actually yesterday I added somebody else yesterday, Magnus Farm in Tipperary, and we are at 281 producers now. Wow. Mm. i counting, you know. Mm. So yeah. what I also did was, because it was a bit of crack in the beginning, um, was that every time anybody, every week I would order one thing myself. So I was not just going to add this on, but I was actually going to, you know, do it. Mm. So you know, talk, walk the walk, I suppose. And so each week I would buy something different. And uh, that was great. That was really fun. That was really nice to see people, things turn up at the door every day. And then some products became very regular. So I ended up buying this. So it's, there was a couple of products I bought a lot at the time. Velvet Cloud yogurt, sheep's milk yogurt. Mm. And mm. also um, Mariko, it's a green tea drink. It's not tea, it's a... It's a it's um a beverage, I guess you'd call it. I don't want to call it a soft drink because there's no sugar in it. And I buy those, still buy those online all the time. Mm. And again, a couple of things began to emerge was the kind of packaging people were using, what was going to arrive at the door, how do you sell jam online without it breaking, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then how how can you do it without having a huge amount of packaging? And I remember one in particular, Moran's Mega Jams up in Cavan, they had this fabulous packaging. It looked like the jam was inside a kind of a balloon for all the world. Okay. And when they obviously pumped in some sort of air into it, but it wasn't plastic. It was some sort of cellulose-based, plant-based material that was completely compostable. 
Brilliant. I was really, I was really struck by that. I thought that was genius, actually. Kieran Moore, mm. if you're listening, that was absolute genius. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm going to buy from them again because you know, you know, when you buy anything in the post, the first thing you say is, "Oh God, all the packaging that came with that." Mm. You no, know, look, we got um, an air source heat pump installed here on Monday, and the boxes that are running around the place after it. Yeah, you'll be weeks. You'll be weeks getting rid of them. Weeks get rid of it. Oh, you can put them into your compost. Oh yeah, it'll be a lot of yeah, a lot of chopping up the pair of scissors, but um. So that was the thing that's kind of emerged with that. So I'm, I'm trying to develop that a bit more now. It's not just, well, there's three things that have emerged. So one is get online, set up a proper e-commerce shop and deliver. Okay. Mm-hmm. Second thing is look at the packaging you're using for this. Can you make it, you know, can you make it not plastic, basically? Something that can be, mm-hmm. well, obviously the first thing is always reduce the amount of packaging in the first place. And if you can't reduce it, is it recyclable or compostable? Mm. Okay. And then the third thing I'm also trying to push, and I haven't really started this much yet, is look at the variety of what you're selling online. You know, mm. I don't want to buy six of the same thing if it's going to be two heaters each. You know, I need to be able mm. to do a, a pick a variety. Some mm-hmm. producers are good at that. So, um, you know, obviously jam producers, you can pick whatever you want. And I think it was Ballyhara Apple or Ballyhara, one of the Apple company, Apple juice companies was great. You could pick the list. Marie was a you could pick up the list. But other places where you had to buy six of one variety or six of the other. And that's, I'm not going to okay. buy six. Yeah. So mm. there's a lot of learning, I suppose, that's going to come and people will develop that themselves over time. It's quite, they probably realize it's quite labor intensive having to put these orders together. Well, you know this, mm. obviously, I'm speaking to mm. the here, but it's, it's something they really should be doing and it'll continue because people are still, mm. I still buy stuff online, even though the mm. shops are open. Because mm. where I am in North Leitrim, they don't necessarily have everything here. In you yeah. know Sligo or in, even in the local supermarkets, they don't mm. have that variety, um, because some producers are very regionally focused and might only sell through retailers in their region. Mm. So it kind of gave that reach. It gave that, if you like, they're back to growth again. It gave that reach in terms of getting to customers that you wouldn't be able to get to, mm. and customers then might even go into shops and start asking for it. So like I went into my local centre and I said, right, will you, do you stock Velvet Cloud yogurt? And they said no. I said, will you stock it though? Because I know that it's on their central ordering system because they told me it was, and they ordered it in. And of course, I then said, I could never, you know, can't stop telling people what I'm doing every day. <laughs> I said, you know, have you seen this new yogurt? It's in Centra and Drum Hair, go in and buy it. And next thing it was gone. And the following weeks, they started, people are buying it now, not just me. Superb. You know? Yeah. So it basically is, you know, put it in front of them, people will buy it, but you have to ask for it, I suppose, in the first place. But anyway, just that's kind of gone off the point a little bit. No, no, no. Really that's exactly funny. the point. That's exactly the point, I think, is that this type of um, refocus, mm. l- let's say, um onto replacing the things that you consume with something that's a little bit more conscious yeah so the conscious shopper and the subconscious shopper this is something that i always think about when you and the example i would use is when you go for milk like what brand of milk do you pick up when you walk into the shop because not all shops have the same ones that's right and there's something subconscious inside you that takes so if you asked me why do i go for that milk now i'm a conscious shopper so mm. i'm like oh i get that one when it's up against the these are the, i have my kind of tier of like the different milks i like but for a very very long time i just went for one and i don't know why i don't i don't know why i also don't know why a lot of other products were featuring in my life i mean i'm quite discerning when it comes to food so i definitely have um things that I particularly like and I don't like. But there was also loads of other things in my life that were just subconsciously added to the way I live. It's true. And I think that a lot of people are thinking more. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people are thinking more now and and maybe falling less victim to marketing on a basic level. 
and kind yeah. of re- registering it and saying, well, I've been caught by this because it has beautiful packaging, but hold on, what's actually in it? Like, you know, mm-hmm. does it look like it? A good thing or is it a good thing you know um and that has happened that has ch- has changed a little bit, I, think. I mean the thing i would say to producers is you know you need to do you need to do the whole thing you need to good packaging you know but functional packaging first of all it'll do the job mm. it's supposed to do you know maybe you want to make it attractive because it's something about consumers when they go into supermarket they scan the shelves at like you know as you know like a cyborg mm. kind of five meters a second something like this kind of a thing and yeah. <laughs> excuse me so you need to get something that's attractive oh sorry i'm going to have to cough now no, you're okay, no problem. We're absolutely mining you for words <laughs> here. <laughs> but, um, you know, and you can have all the provenance story in the world and you might have a great recipe and you can talk about the heather-covered hills of Wicklow, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, if it doesn't taste good, nobody's going to buy it a second time. I don't care how gorgeous mm. it looks. You know, it has mm. to have quality. Mm. It absolutely has to. So... That's the that's the nub of it. You might so the shiny bit, you know, they've like the nice packaging and all the marketing will attract attention, but it has to have substance. That's the really key thing with it. Yeah. Essential. Mm. It's funny when you talk about milk, you know, uh, my son uh only drinks Conoco milk, right? This is it. The Conoco Gold is the if you like the the um co op in this neck of the it's world. The co op, the co op milk in, in yeah. your area. And uh so when he goes to visit his grannies either in Galway or Cavan, we have to bring the Conoco Gold with us, you know, because <laughs> It tastes different, and it does taste different, and it actually does because of the different types of fat they're from different herds and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And um, when I worked in, I used to work in St Angeles, and I've noticed the students would bring milk back with them from different parts of the country. So people like it's a flavor thing, I suppose. People would develop these tastes, but I was trying to just, you know tell my son actually you could buy uh, off-brand milk, you know, so the supermarket brand, and it still tastes the same. And he said no, it doesn't. And I said yeah, ha, it does actually because it's made by Conor Gold. And he said how do you know uh-huh. that? It was a little health mark. I said look for the factory number. So I said, I have now, you know, looking at the labels and said, oh, it's the same factory number that's granddled by that. So, so. <laughs> My God, you're a hawk for the labels. That's very <laughs> impressive. <laughs> oh, yeah, I am actually, I have to say. I really enjoyed listening to your thoughts there on the business supports um, that are out there. Personally, I've got an, an awful lot out of what the local enterprise office um, have offered, like from training and mentoring and also the financial backing that allowed me to work on different projects and that. But my question really is about growing your food business but specifically growing it for exporting like this this bigger kind of uh thing that we all seem to be obsessed with like how much really should we be emphasizing this in light of having self-sufficiency and homegrown food security on our own island does that kind of question make sense it definitely does uh, the in terms of exports you know it depends where what you want to do it depends you have to think about that in terms mm. of the strategy for your business is this something you want to do but don't forget people can export to northern ireland and it's definitely definitely yeah. exporting now i mean even before brexit um depending on who you spoke to people didn't consider the north necessarily exporting the agencies sometimes would call it wouldn't consider mm. it unless it was off island was the phrase they'd use okay mm. but um and it is certainly closer for some people. Anybody near Border County, you know, anywhere north of the Galway Dublin line should be thinking about looking at the north as well as looking yes. south. Yeah. And there's a huge amount of help there. If anybody's thinking about doing that, I would suggest that they talk to Intertrade Ireland um, because it okay. loads of help for anybody developing sales. Either direction, actually, whether you want to go south to north or north to south, they're, mm-hmm. don't go past them. Really, really good. Um. But in terms of kind of food security, like it's been really front and center the last couple mm. of weeks, people begin to worry now about the price of things going up and the price of flour or even just having access to product. And it, I suppose it's back to the same thing we spoke about earlier is, you know, being too reliant on 
Okay, this is the balance between being expert and really good and focusing on one area, like dairy, for example, in Ireland mm. and beef and, you know, things that are certainly unique in the world. There's no question about mm. that. But then finding that is that to the exclusion of other things that we need every day, mm. like vegetables, you know, mm. but that's more that is, it's obviously a very complex picture because it's not just about government policy. People won't work picking vegetables. You can't get the labor. I mean, look mm. at the, you know, the awful backlash that Keelings got a couple of years ago when they were, you know, bringing in laborers from Eastern Europe. I mean, even aside the pay and mm. um, people just don't want to do that kind of work, you know, mm. But it maybe it needs to be made more attractive. Maybe it needs to be paid better. You know, yeah. same with the beef industry. Maybe it needs to be paid better. If it's going to be paid better, that's going to put the costs for the producers up and people need to be willing to pay more money for food. And that's yeah. the problem. Mm. That food Absolutely. has become so cheap, you know, commodities so cheap that anything else like organic or local appears expensive in comparison. And consumers mm -hmm. then are like, oh, I'm not going to buy that. That's too dear. Like, you know, you ask them and loads of research will tell you people when they're asked will say they'll always choose local, choose Irish over anything else. Yeah. Until it comes yeah. to picking it off the shelf and putting it in their basket. You know, then I think, well, cheaper I don't know, like one ninety nine compared to three ninety nine. I'm not sure about that. Mm -hmm. you know, know. So it's about making people, if you have, if you're in the position, the fortunate position to have the money to spend, you know, choosing to spend it on Irish products. Some people just aren't in that position. But um, there is a difficulty. Like it's, it's there's a lot to consider with it. Yeah. Certainly food security would be of concern and even things like skills and people being able to, you know, make their own food, bake their own bread. You know, not everybody will start making bread. You know, I've done so many courses on yeast bread and I've still not made one, I have to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Una, you're going to have to up your game there now. <laughs> no, but um, I remember I did a fantastic course a couple of years ago over in a place called Pudding Row in Eski and uh, there's a girl there called Dervla um, Oh, Durbel's last name's gone to my head now. But she's a brilliant, brilliant baker and uh, has fantastic business over there. And we did this course. I thought, let's go back and make it all my own yeast bread. Never once since did I do it. But anyway, you know, people need to have that skill, even to make their own food, cook, it, cook a dinner. Like it's a, it always surprises me because, and the same with us now, the three of us will be kind of food driven and it's just in our nature to be all about food. Whereas a lot of people, it just isn't, mm. you know. And it's trying to really get that. That brings us on to the whole thing about home economics and schools and the whole thing. And that's a whole other conversation. But, you know, definitely food security, but being able to feed yourself is pretty basic, you know. So that was our chat with Una Monaghan. Do check out her business, which is Alpha Omega. And the idea behind the name, which I think is quite clever, Alpha Omega, is it's the Greek alphabet. And she'll start with you at the beginning of your business journey and bring you right through to the end. That's kind of the idea. Nice. Yeah, really nice. I also would recommend picking up a copy of her book, Money for Jam. And of course, you can pick it up online, but it's also available in a lot of bookshops. And um, we actually came across a copy in the local library and it's literally jam packed full of useful info. And Una is always available if you want to reach out. You'll find her at all the usual socials like Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and of course, her own website, alphaomega.ie. And we'll put these links as always in the show notes. Until next week. See ya. Take care.